The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast. I'm Sadie. Oh, and I'm yawning. I'm Stani. I'm so tired. I'm Stani, though. Hi. I think this is what happens when we both have full-time jobs plus being podcasters here. So, yep. It's all good. We're we're just we're happy to be here though. <laughs> we are happy to be here. And it's a really fun episode today. Just a warning, we are going to get a little heavy at some parts, definitely in the racism sphere, sphere <laughs> known as our world. I, was like, I Yeah, whatever, <laughs> yeah. it works. But yeah. Who are we talking about today? I have we're no idea. About Anna Mae Wong. Oh. Yes, she's incredible. And is pretty much known as like the first major Asian American Hollywood starlet. Or I even read a lot of things that called her the most famous Asian American at the time. Which I wow. think is probably very fair. At least Chinese American. But she's really cool. And I learned a ton. We are going to go into a state of the arts. It's a little bit heavy. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying cool isn't like, cool, I can't wait to learn about horrible things that people have done. But, you know, yeah. it's fine. We're trying to keep a cheery disposition Definitely. as much as we can. I'm like trying to think if there's anything else we should talk about. I mean, the Met Gala happened this week. So we had our Met Gala yeah. episode that went up last week. Blake Lively like won the night for me. Oh, absolutely. She was yeah, the best. She was. That dress. Gosh. I'm finishing up my personal art. Nice. EP mini That's album. That's right. That's coming out soon. Yes. I got back like a final-ish mix today for the very last song. And I was listening to it at the gym earlier with headphones in. And it was just a little feeling a little giddy mm-hmm. about it, you know. So it's like the moment like whenever I'm making a song there's like a moment that I'm like I hate it I hate it I hate it I hate it until boom I'm like okay cool I like it now and I finally had that moment today so that's been that's been rewarding I'm sure yeah I definitely feel that way about a lot of things I did like two zine designs last week that took a lot of time and effort but they turned out pretty good. Yes. So. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Sometimes I'm like, why am I freelancing while I have a full-time job and a podcast? Like, wasn't the whole point of the full-time job so that we didn't have to yeah. freelance? But I'm saying that as someone who is greatly benefiting from your freelancing. <laughs> so thank you. Well, there's just times when I'm like, I do it because it's fun. But then other times I'm like, this is exhausting. Like, this is in fact <laughs> not fun. Yeah. So. That's what. That's- I'm like such a typical go-getter in some ways and I am quitting my second teaching job in June so I can have this whole summer to myself 
before I move at the end of this month, not to myself, like so I can be with family, yeah. so I can get everything done that I need to, like so much needs to get done. And I'm thinking like, oh my, like, cool. Like I keep reminding myself not to take on more students. <laughs> Because part of me is like, perfect, I'll have all this time. Now I can create my own online studio. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's you not the time. quit this job so that you'd only have one job this yes. summer. And then I'm also having this instinct of like, and then when we get to Nashville, I'll get a full-time job and I'll start getting students. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're going to get one full-time job so that when you're not working, you can pursue music, music more actively. Yeah. And I'm just like... But I could, I technically have time and it's like, no, no, no. Like, I just love burning myself out. And this is just like, I have to like take steps back to be like, do not take on students that you don't have time for. I don't for. know what it is. I Anyways. think about it all the time because it's like, why do I have this like innate desire within me to always have multiple streams of income? Like, am I terrified of like mm-hmm. falling into poverty? Because I'm not that I mean, close. <laughs> but like, maybe... <laughs> I mean, I would love to say that's my thing. It's just that I don't know how much income I'm actually getting. It's not like I'm getting a lot of money to make it really worth the time, but I don't know. I need to, I'm working on not getting my value from Uh, being constantly busy or not making myself constantly busy. So I don't have the time to sit and Mm. think about my perception of myself. Well, this is better than therapy. (laughs) Many things to think about now. (laughs) I have had a very personally therapy-inducing week after a rough mental spell, Mm. and I've had a great couple days, but I am just like, you know, I've I've been in the realm of self-discovery this week, and it sucked. (laughs) That's all. It sucked. But hey, we're here does <laughs> but it's good yes it does it is good <laughs> well cool i guess if any of you out there are also constantly picking up random jobs <laughs> don't do it you don't, don't need, need to, to do it you already have enough also i'm thinking too i'm like if i don't take on these other jobs i won't be so burnt mm-hmm. out that i can actually put all the time and energy in the things i want to grow my personal music project, this podcast, yes. like these are the things I'm passionate about. And if I'm not exhausted from working 50 hours a week, I bet I'd have more time to put into yep. these. I just, I feel like that's how it will work. I so agree. I'm like reminding myself, I'm like, I want the podcast to succeed. I want my music to succeed. Things will like be going, time and resources will be spent on those. So agreed as I yawn again. <laughs> that's okay really okay guys i just worked a 70 hour week last week it's fine (laughs) slow down that's the plan we're not doing that again good same like i said come june i'm a free woman (laughs) as far with one of my jobs so i'm excited (laughs) me too and excited to talk about anna may wong me too i'm excited let's dive in so Like I said, we're going to kind of talk about state of the arts first. Anna Mae Wong was born in Los Angeles, California in the 1930s, which is a very crazy time for like the United States, California, Hollywood. (laughs) Like a lot was happening, especially with the Asian American community. So I'm going to try not to make it go too long, but there was just so much information that I had to pack in here. So bear with me. 
but it's all very interesting. So what happened is that in the 1850s, so quite a bit before that though, Chinese immigrants were flocking to the United States trying to escape like the economic chaos that was happening in China at the time. And also, of course, for the California gold rush. Everyone was going to California. Is that where everybody was headed? As we know, though, the gold rush didn't last that long. And so when it ended, a lot of the Chinese Americans stayed and were just treated as very cheap labor. So they found a lot of employment as farmhands, gardeners, domestic workers, laundry workers, and famously railroad workers. This is a fun fact I did not know. In the 1860s, it was the Chinese Americans who built the Transcontinental Railroad. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Today, Chinese Americans make up the largest Asian population in the United States, totaling 2.5 million. So that just goes to show you, like, there was a lot of Chinese Americans coming over, especially to California. By the 1870s, however, there was widespread economic depression in the Americas and jobs became really scarce. Hostility was already growing towards Chinese American workers, and then it created this whole horrible phenomenon called the Yellow Peril. Oh, I've, I've heard yes, of this. Yes, it's also called like the Yellow Terror, the Yellow Specter, but it was just mm-hmm. this whole idea that like the Asians were going to come and take all of the jobs and there would be none left for anyone else, and then they were going to conquer us slowly and rise through the ranks and like take over our entire country obviously it makes zero sense like they were farmhands and laundry workers and then they're like oh you're gonna take over our entire government not to mention the fact that it's extremely xenophobic and so racist like yeah yeah, just really ridiculous a lot of it apparently stemmed from like history of like Genghis Khan and like other things like that like Asian conquerors and Mm. also there was like these weird ideas of like what was it like special powers that like Asians had and so they were worried they would like overpower them which is weird as well as like the traditional racist stereotypes of like they're lesser primitive madmen you know like why do we always view other cultures as less than us it's very weird I'm saying that as a white person, not that I participate in any of that. Anyway, by 1882, things got so bad that the Congress actually passed the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which I couldn't find out if it was, but I'm pretty sure it's one of the only times they banned an entire race from entering a country. Really? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I I don't remember any other time that that has happened. But yeah, it's basically exactly what they said. They banned all Chinese immigration to the United States. So they wouldn't allow skilled or unskilled laborers to enter the country. They also created amendments to the law. So this went on for quite a while. They passed amendments preventing Chinese laborers who left the United States from returning. Wow. Yep. And then also it created a lot of obstacles for Chinese Americans already in the States. This is especially true for like Anime Wong. You had to be interviewed every single time you left and re-entered, regardless of where you were going or for how long. Mm. So they would have these like long interviews about like why you were leaving, what you were going to do, when you were coming back, why you were coming back. Just ridiculous immigration laws and only for Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans. It was definitely yes targeted. 100%. 
and that went on for majority of Anna Mae Wong's life. This Chinese Exclusion Act was in effect because it was only repealed in 1943 when China became America's ally in World War II. Then they repealed it. Mm. However, even then, Chinese immigration was limited to 105 people a year, which is a very odd specific number. Also, like, not a lot of people at no. all. Only 105? 105. That was it. And that continued on for another, like, 20 years until 1965 when all restrictions were lifted and Chinese Americans started to arrive in America in huge numbers. This is when, well, actually way before that, Chinatown started appearing, like, clear back in the 1900s. But obviously they boomed mm -hmm. after immigration laws were opened up and now you have like chinatown in new york city there's also like little chinatowns in los angeles and throughout pretty much all of the united states you can usually find like a little part of chinatown somewhere there was also another fun racist law it's called anti-miscegenation rules basically you weren't allowed to marry anyone who wasn't the same race as you oh yeah which i mean You've heard of before, definitely with like, I think slavery and like racism mm -hmm. with predominantly like African-American black communities. That was like a major yeah. thing. But it actually was for literally any mixed race marriage was completely illegal. Obviously, it's not a new mindset. It had been around since like 17th, 18th century, like very, very, very early especially after mm -hmm. the complete racialization of slavery. So when they decided like all of slavery was going to be from one race of people instead of everyone. But it defined mixed race marriages or sexual relations between mixed races as a felony prohibiting issue of marriage licenses or solemnization of weddings between mixed race couples and the officiating of such ceremonies. A lot of the times they didn't actually hold them guilty of miscegenation itself, but like charged them for adultery or fornication, which is weird because technically mm -hmm. it's not adultery or fornication if you're just trying to marry someone. But anyway, people were extremely opposed. Even up until the 1950s, there was a Gallup poll that showed that 94% of Americans, 94%. I don't think we've gotten 94% of anything in a very long time where that many people in our country agree on one thing, but they all Truly. disapproved of interracial marriage. Wow. Yeah. And that was in 1958. That's ridiculous. 94%. So crazy. However, that quickly changed in the 1960s, thank heavens. And on June 12th, 1967, the Supreme Court issued its Loving versus Virginia decision, which struck down laws that banned interracial marriages as unconstitutional. Um, I loved the quote from Chief Justice Earl Warren. He said, the freedom to marry or to not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. Which is great, because a lot of states were fine with it and a lot of other states were outlawing it which is very yeah. relevant to today's conversation, but that's another topic <laughs> entirely. Also, Hollywood, of course, was not immune to any of the racism that was happening at the time. In our yeah. Hollywood Starlets episode, we did talk about the Hayes Code, right? I can't remember if we I did, actually. we mentioned a lot. I don't think we like specifically said exactly what it was. It was just like the set of crazy rules that they had everyone following in Hollywood. 
It was established in 1930 and then originally enforced in 1934. And it was just this long rule of acceptable and unacceptable content for motion pictures. Mind you, they didn't have ratings. They didn't have like PG, G, PG-13, R. And so this is what they did. They just like all films had to follow all of these rules. They kept it until 1968. So around the same time that a lot of these other things started getting rid of. That's when they replaced the production code or the Hayes code with the film rating system that we have today. But some of the rules of the Hayes code were that you couldn't have like any romantic encounters between two people of different races because of those anti-miscegenation laws. So you couldn't have like a Chinese American actress kiss a white actor on screen. You know, you just... Like, it's just amazing how we've all just, like, forgotten right? this. You know? I'm so... Well, I want to be surprised, you know? I want to be like, wow, how could have this happened? And how could have I not known? First off, I'm calling myself out here. Yeah. Like, you know, I obviously needed... I mean, I guess I am kind of trying to do my part by doing this <laughs> podcast. I'll at least give my... You know, tap myself on the back for that. But, you know, it's just like... Part of me is like, what? I can't believe that. And it's like, I need to, like, stop being surprised... Yeah by things like this because unfortunately as this podcast has proved i will continue to be disappointed agreed <laughs> that that's all i that's it's all also i gotta weird, say the things that they had on here like it just seems very random like pointed profanity was one and they said specifically however it may be spelled it doesn't matter it's not allowed <laughs> so uh-huh. um any suggestive nudity like even a silhouette not allowed a legal traffic of drugs which is interesting because that's everywhere in film now Ah. any inference of sex pervasion white slavery interesting which specifically meant like sexual slavery and then obviously misogynation sex hygiene like i don't know if that includes like a girl grabbing a tampon from the store or like what all is involved yeah in i know i was like i'd be so interested in like what that was defined <laughs> yeah. in that time period scenes of actual childbirth which i mean i had to watch a film for that in my sex ed class i'm 100 percent on board of keeping that out of film <laughs> because it's terrifying <laughs> children's yeah. sex organs obviously agree with that ridicule of the clergy interesting Mm. and then they had a bunch of other ones obviously they were very against like i read a thing that said you couldn't point a gun directly at the camera because it was seen as like too aggressive the institution of marriage which means like sex after marriage also not allowed to be shown that's why a lot of the times they had people in different beds oh yes i remember that yeah Mm -hmm. which is so weird also had to like get rid of weird religious things like in the Frankenstein film there was a line from like the script that said now I know what it feels like to be God because he created something and that was not allowed because it was seen as extremely offensive like blasphemous blasphemous. yeah Uh, this one was hilarious (laughs) in Alfred Hitchcock's 1946 film Notorious there was a rule on all films, so not just this one, but all films, where you couldn't have a kiss for longer than three seconds because it would be like a makeout scene. It was like too yeah. passionate. And yeah. so they worked around this rule for his film Notorious by having the actors break off after every three seconds and then made the whole kissing scene last for two and a half minutes. 
but just had them take breaks every <laughs> three seconds <laughs> that's amazing yeah. there's so much more to the haze code honestly we could do like a whole episode on the haze code because there's so much honestly yeah i don't think we mentioned this during the starlet episode because yeah, i don't I remember it at all i did a tiktok on it i probably yeah. i have a vague memory like i've heard of it before like about like the separate beds and everything but like like i said again like it's funny how i've heard about the separate beds but i haven't heard about the fact that you couldn't show like interracial right? marriage or you know even, it's like, just any interracial relationship at all like just yeah really crazy there's so much to it like even to the point where they were restricting diets like you had to be a certain size like there's a ton that went into this haze code in the Hollywood golden age that honestly doesn't look that golden when you look back on it. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was one of the main reasons why they didn't have a lot of minorities in lead roles was because of that rule, because then they'd have to cast two minorities from the same race in a lead role, which is what led to the horrible, horrible, horrible fact that Hollywood used yellow face a ton oh, mm-hmm. like a freaking ton like more than you ever would think is possible they used it and those films are still in circulation none of them have been banned unlike a lot of the blackface films which is kind of crazy actually that like one was so completely erased from like being allowed even in like historical showings and the other one still continues really interesting just like blackface, yellowface dates back to like early forms of minstrel shows or they'd like darken their face or use prosthetics and costumes to appear Asian for different shows. One of the first appearances of yellowface was in a film by D.W. Griffin, best known for The Birth of a Nation. And he had all of these characters in blackface and yellowface and it was so popular, it reignited the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, oh. talk about a legacy for a movie. Like that's... That's what it yep. did. Yellowface characters would persist throughout the 1930s. There's a ton of them. You have like a lot of roles in Madame Butterfly, which is a very popular one. The Mask of Fu Manchu. Even well-known actors and actresses would end up participating in this. You have Katherine Hepburn in the 1944 drama Dragon Seed. She was in Yellowface. A lot of people assumed it was for ticket sales. They were like, oh, but if we cast white actors and actresses, then we'll generate more ticket sales because they're more well-known and more people will Mm -hmm. come. And sadly, that wasn't completely false. Actor Warren Oland replaced Asian lead actors in the Charlie Chan films of the 1930s, and the film skyrocketed to success, which then justified it for a lot of other following roles. Until the mid to late 1900s, there was no public outcry over yellowface roles. So a lot of people just saw it as a chance to like take on a different ethnicity, a challenge, you know, show your versatility as an actor, which isn't okay. Um, obviously, I gosh, sometimes I say things and I'm like, well, duh. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but you cannot deny the history of Yellowface being patently and overtly racist and painful to a host of people. And actors need to act and that if we start drawing strict racial lines when it comes to casting, we only redefine the problem that exists now. That's what one guy said, which is kind of crazy. So a lot of people were just like, well, they need a part. Uh, Blatant Mm -hmm. Yellowface has kind of disappeared for the most part. However, it's been pretty much replaced with just the idea of whitewashing. So... Yeah. (laughs) One example is very recent. The 2017 film Ghost in a Shell 
It was based on a series made up entirely of Japanese characters, and then they just cast a bunch of white people in it, including Scarlett Johansson, to play it instead. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, which is why Crazy Rich Asians, which is an incredible movie, was such... Right? So good. It made it so significant because it was the first time they produced a movie with an all-Asian cast that was actually a critically acclaimed film. So some of the negative stereotypes, I promise we're almost done with this (laughs) student of the arts. (laughs) No, you're good. It's good to know. So the most common negative stereotypes of Asian characters, this is a note here. We have a, what did we call it? Our film tropes episode. Yes. Where we uh go into a lot of like the more funny film tropes, like the dumb blonde and the mean girl and stuff like that. We didn't go into a lot of the racial ones because they're not a joke. They're really harmful and extremely hurtful to large groups of people. Whereas like the dumb blonde stereotype, I think anyone who's ever been blonde is like, yeah, it's annoying, but it's not. It's not (laughs) harmful. Yeah. In the ways. Yes, exactly. So Asian culture, just like every other culture, has negative stereotypes within it that were really perpetuated in Hollywood and the anime Wong mm-hmm. was like particularly afflicted with. The first one is the Dragon Lady. The title originated from an empress, Su Zhu, who ruled in China from 1898 to 1908. She was known mm-hmm. as a tyrant because she had all these cold-blooded ways that she would kill anyone who challenged her authority. So it created like the stereotype in East Asian or occasionally South Asian and Southeast Asian of like a woman who is strong, deceitful, domineering, mysterious, and often sexually alluring. So kind of like the femme fatale, but like a little bit stronger than that, where it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. she's sexy, but she's literally going to kill you. A lot of the times it's used in a lesser fashion where it's like, oh, it's just a powerful but prickly woman. So it's like, oh, she's powerful, but Mm -hmm. she's kind of spiky. But it's usually used in a derogatory fashion. Another one that's extremely prominent is Madama Butterfly, which was a late 19th century book and opera. Yeah. It's one of like the only classical narratives of Asian culture that's continued to exist throughout time with like a weird chokehold on society. And one of the main problems that it has with it is that it just over eroticizes Asian women. In the story, Butterfly is the lover of this all-American Navy man. And then she commits suicide at the end after waiting years for her man to return from the sea. And then it's ultimately revealed that she was nothing more than a convenience for him because he just wanted like a Japanese geisha wife. And then Mm -hmm. it says like she lived and died a sexual object which is so true of the whole thing. It also just shows a lot of like coded inferiority and explicit sexual purpose of classic female Asian characters. So it just like created this over sexualization of Asian women where they play like the exotic erotic other instead of allowing them to be like a full person. That's also in the musical South Pacific kind of, I think if I'm remembering it right. It's been a very long time since I've seen that musical, but I went and like saw it at a professional theater when I was in high school. And I remember leaving that just being like, I hated Mm. that. Like that was so, I hate that musical even still. It's my least favorite musical, but I think it's like a pretty similar trope where it's like he cheats on his girl at home for the 
south pacific island yeah. girl and ah i hate it no. i hate that musical with a passion right. it's annoying because they take an entire race and then like sexualize them in this way and it's like mm-hmm. seen in a lot of ways like parks and rec the one councilman guy he like says he has yellow fever oh, yeah, yeah which is a common uh-huh. term that's thrown around where like a man only wants to date asian women and i think a large part of that is from like these stereotypes like Madame a Butterfly, where they over-eroticize an entire race. Over-sexualize. Yeah, yeah, and just messed up. So that's another continuing problem that a lot of Asian women face. Okay, so now we get to actually talk about Anime Wong. <laughs> yeah. Hooray! <laughs> I mean, necessary to provide that context, but like excited to hear yes. about what she did. And, and it definitely plays into a lot of her life, so keep it mm-hmm. all in mind. The anime Wong was born on January 3rd, 1905 in the Chinatown area of Los Angeles, California. Something that's super interesting, the Asian community there at the time had about one woman for every 20 men. In, okay. Every 20 wow. men, there was one woman, and it was a group of about 30,000 in- immigrants at the time, which wow. they considered it a bachelor society, which is a thing, apparently, where they just have too many men for too few women, so it's a bachelor society. I mean, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and how do you fix that when marrying anyone of a different race is completely illegal? I'm, oh, I guess that's an excellent point. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of like weird rules around girls. I'm sure she grew up with a ton of pressure from that because little girls were seen as extremely precious because it was like you were bringing a woman into a bachelor society. So a little girl was like the future of your community. Like you can't create more people yeah. without a woman. Without women. So yeah. They kind of, they looked at them as extremely precious. So they had a lot of rules about modesty. Like you can't show your arms. You shouldn't be out in the street. Like can't walk out in public Mm. alone. Um, They also didn't want them to like learn how to bike or like roller skate or anything like that. Like traditional pastimes Hmm. for the American child. She was the second child of eight children. So a very big family. Her Mm. birth name was Wang Lu Tsong, which means frosted yellow willows, which I love. She was given the English name Anna May by her family. So then her English name was Anna May Song. And then she came up with her stage name by combining. Yeah, Mm. her first name was Wong in Chinese, right? And then her English name was Anna May. And so she combined them. And that was her stage name, Anna May Wong, which is cool. Oh, cute. Um, Her family was originally from Taishan, China. Her grandfather immigrated to the United States in the 1850s, around the same time as the gold rush, opened a store in California near the area where gold had been discovered in 1848. And then her father was born in 1858 in California. His name was Sam Singh. So that made her, I think, third generation American. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So they'd been there for a while. It wasn't like brand new, but obviously still a lot of problems. Soon after... Sam Singh was born, her father. His father, her grandfather, died when he was trying to rescue a woman that fell into a well. Yeah, like being a hero. And then he passed away. So her father actually returned to China for a short time, but then came back to the United States after his first marriage. He married a woman named Gong Toy Li, who had also been born in California. And they opened a laundromat together. And just a note to back then, laundromats were completely by hand. Which threw me for a loop. <laughs> oh, so it wasn't like they were just sitting there managing the counter as people put quarters into the machine. No, they were washing all of the laundry. 
They're closed yes, by hand. Completely Ooh, well, by hand. That's crazy. It was on North Figueroa Street in Los Angeles. And a note that it had here actually in her bio is that a lot of Asian men were regulated to do more of the female work so that they were not a threat to other men in the economy. So they're like, oh, laundry. Well, that's only going to interfere with women. So go ahead, do laundry, which is another <laughs> form of racism and misogyny at the same time. Double whammy. Something that was kind of cool, actually, is that his laundromat was just outside of Chinatown. So his customer mm-hmm. base wasn't only Chinatown. It was mostly a lot of other diverse communities, which means that Anna Mae Wong got to grow up with a lot of like diverse interactions with a lot of people. So a lot of other minorities. She met a lot of like Mexican-Americans, a lot of other Asian cultures like Korean and Japanese. You know, like she got to meet a ton of different people from a lot of different places, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. They lived in a really diverse neighborhood. She attended California Street Public Elementary School where, of course, because kids sucked, her and her older sister were teased and bullied because of their race. So their parents ended up moving them to the Chinese Mission School in Chinatown, where they were welcomed. Wong worked at her family's laundromat and attended Chinese language classes after school. She would save up her money, and her favorite thing to do with her money was to go to the movies. No surprise there. Aww. <laughs> yeah. When film production moved from New York to California in the 1910s, which was a huge deal, Wong started visiting movie sets. If you were Chinese, another stupid racism rule is that you couldn't sit in the main theater. You had to sit on the balcony. I don't know why that mattered, but it did. So she would hmm. skip school and then use her lunch money to go to the movies and sit in the balcony and watch all of the major motion pictures that were out at the time. At the age of nine, she decided she wanted to be a movie star, and that's when she came up with her stage name at the age of 11 by committing her name. Oh, I love that. Her mother knew that she was skipping school and was kind of okay with it and was just like, you know, like she wants to be a film star, like let her dream. Her father... That is a good mother. Yeah, her father was not a fan. I mean... Part of me is like, what a monster. But I'm also like, you know, if my child is skipping school one day to go to the movies and saying, I'm going to be a movie star, I'd be like, you know what? Let's, let's finish that great. Like, let's, 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 like, yeah, let's make go to school first and then go to the movies yeah. and then we can talk about exactly. it. So, I mean, completely justified. Also, at that time in Asian culture, actors and actresses were seen in the same lights as prostitutes. Which is so interesting. Mm. Yeah, it was like a very controversial profession because they were like performing for money. So it was like seen in the same light Mm. as like a prostitute. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. So today for Artist Spotlights, I found this really just beautiful. I don't know if it's like paint, digital art. I truthfully am not good at knowing that. I'm not a visual person. I'm not a visual artist, I mean. Anyways, so it's Anki Moore, A-N-K-Y Moore, M-O-O-R-E. And I just, I really love their art so much. They're painting. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's painting. And what I love too is all of her prints are available for sale. And they're just such stunning, beautiful portraits of women a lot of women and dogs and like or women and pets but also like mermaids and women with the moon and holding the stars and surrounded by flowers and i don't know how to describe it really but it has such a distinct style 
and it's it's beautiful. It's See, stunning. have you That's ever all. seen any of the Studio Ghibli films? No. <sighs> I'm going to Google it. Yeah, so they're directed created by Hayao Mazaki. He's a guy. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so my family, hello listeners, my family lived in Japan for like six months when I was really young. And then we came back, and of course, my little brother was obsessed with Pokemon. I was obsessed with Hello Kitty. And we had all of these Studio Ghibli films, or Studio Ghibli, Ghibli. I don't know. I'm probably saying it wrong. Um, oh, like, so this is like Spirited yes, Away, Ponyo, uh, okay, Totoro. Okay, okay. They're like the cutest, sweetest films ever. I highly recommend if you haven't seen them, go watch them. They just, they're sweet. It's like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like lo-fi music in a film. They're just cute. <laughs> I, I like that description. <laughs> yeah. Okay, nice. But anyway, the reason I brought it up, she did a set of prints of the women from Studio Ghibli Films. Like she has... Um, oh, and I wouldn't have yeah. even gotten that like, reference. She has the girl from Princess Minoke. She has like the two characters from what's it called? Spirited Away, I think. Yeah. She has uh, Kiki from Kiki's Delivery Service, which is my personal favorite. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Howl's Moving mm-hmm. Castle, she has that one too. And then she also has the princess from Castle in the Sky. So, and the girl from Totoro. They're just really well done. So anyway, very they charming. They are. Ponyo. They're really cute. And I didn't even get the reference and that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably even cooler when you uh-huh. know what she's referencing. Especially because like all of the characters are children. And in like her prints, she made them all kind of look like teenagers or adults. So it's just kind of fun to like mm-hmm. see characters that you remember from your childhood as like older. <laughs> yeah. No, I love <laughs> yeah. that. Anyway, so go look at those because you'll like them. And again, that's Anki, A-N-K-Y, more, M-O-O-R-E. Love that. Okay, I'm going to shout out a YouTuber that I adore. I don't think I've Ooh. done her before. Let me make sure. I don't remember YouTubers, except for that one who does on fashion. Oh, cool. Okay, I haven't. Her name is Amanda Rach Lee, and I love her stuff. She lives in Toronto. For some reason, I follow a ton of Canadian YouTubers. That's like my most common nationality i don't know why <laughs> what did you say is her amanda, first name again? and then it's rach amanda. like rachel but just rach and then lee amanda rach lee amanda rach okay lee. there she is perfect um, she does bullet journaling which is where i ended up following Ooh. her she's probably the biggest bullet journaler on youtube by far um she also does like some other character stuff and everything like that she's obsessed with k-pop which i'm not but i love seeing her content around it and just does like a different theme and like live stream every single month for all of her. Oh, with and even just like all the calligraphy yes. and hand lettering. I'm just like looking through her channel now. Ugh. If I, I am not, okay. I don't want to like put myself in boxes. But something I am not <laughs> good at is anything regarding visual design and neatness. I don't have that Kate, but you have the eye for it. Can I say that? Thank you. You may not ever do it, but like you're one of the easiest clients I have because you know exactly what you want in your brain. Does that make sense? But you see, that's the most frustrating (laughs) part of it all because I know and I can put the pieces and I can see it. When I try to execute it myself, I... It never worked. <laughs> and you know what? Like I said, I don't want to put myself in a box. Yeah. Maybe maybe one day I could do it. But even like if someone was like, draw a straight line. I can't. I cannot. <laughs> I cannot even make it. Nothing about the way I interact with pen and paper or anything visual is neat 
in the way it should be. And that's why I'm thankful for people like you. (laughs) But anyways, I admire people who bullet journal Mm -hmm. because the ability to make something look aesthetic and cute. I'm like, I bet your life is perfectly beautiful and planned. And of course, it's not. Everyone's got their problems. But (laughs) I just, I admire bullet bullet journal. Oh my gosh. I admire bullet journaling so much. It's like if I could be anything in the world that I'm not even being that sarcastic. So I mean, you can. There's plenty of ways to do it without art. There's tons of videos on YouTube, but yeah. Well, now Mm -hmm. I know. Okay. I just, I love it. And she's by far one of the best, one of my favorites. So check her out. I am subscribing. I love her YouTube. Her Instagram is really fun. She also does some funny videos on TikTok. One of them actually where she just shows herself freehanding straight lines over and over again because she does it constantly. So you know what? That (laughs) nothing is more impressive than that. It's mystifying. Down. So anyway, check her out, Amanda Reach Lee, and feel free to send us any more suggestions for artist spotlights in the future. All right, now back to the show. In 1919, a casting call went out for Chinese women for a new film called The Red Lantern. Without her father knowing, Wong asked her father's friend to introduce her to the assistant director of the movie, where she was then cast as an extra, extra, and asked to carry a lantern in one of the scenes. It was her first movie role. Her debut. Yeah. And she was really young, I think, like 1919. She was born in 1905. She is quoted saying, My father objected so strongly to my desire to appear in pictures that we were all ill. My quiet little mother let us battle it out, and I won. It was the first great battle for my career. Aw, that's <laughs> Yeah, sweet. so finally he relented. He was like, whatever, go do your thing. She continued to work as an extra in many movies while still attending school before dropping out in 1921 to become an actress full-time. She landed a role as Toiling's wife in the film Bits of Life for that same year that she dropped out of high school. So, I mean, it paid off. At age 17, she landed her first leading role in the 1922 film The Toll of the Sea. It was a silent film, and it was basically the Chinese version of Madame Butterfly. Because they were like, it's not enough to have a Japanese one. Let's have a Chinese one, too. However, she was, it was one of the first movies ever made in Technicolor, which is really cool that one of the first Mm. movies ever made in Technicolor had an actress that was a woman of color. That's really cool. Yeah. And a variety actually ended up quoting and calling her an exquisite crier because it was a silent film. So, but they said that she was a very beautiful crier and she just had this ability to look beautiful while she was crying, which I do not have. I mean, I can't do that. So, yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) Of course, the anti-miscegenation laws barred her from landing a ton of roles. She continued to audition for lead roles, but just always cast as a supporting character or those, like, typical Asian characters. In large part, because if they Mm -hmm. wanted a male lead, they couldn't cast her if he was white. So it just, like... Yeah, it just barred a ton of opportunities. In March of 1924, she actually created her own production company called Anime Wong Productions to try and make films about her own culture. However, her business partner used bad business practices and it had to close shortly after. Like, just another opportunity that was ruined because of someone else. She actually said, I was so tired of the parts I had to play. Why is it that on the screen, the Chinese is nearly always the villain of the piece and so cruel a villain? Murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass. We are not like that. How should we be with a civilization that's so many times older than that of the West? 
We've had our own virtues. We have our own rigid code of behavior of honor. Why do they never show these on screen? Why are we always to scheme, rob, and kill? Mm. And I love that where she's like, we've been around for centuries. (laughs) Like we are a very established, like, like, you know, like successful society. And yet they're reviewing them as these like savage, treacherous. Degenerates. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, we've been around for ever. (laughs) Like, you guys are the new ones here. Like, you're the outsiders, like, trying this whole civilization thing yeah, out like, here. Like, we've, we've mastered been doing this. it forever. Like, they've been, like, they were literally creating silk before we were even discovered. So, well, her first major film success was in 1924, where she played a Mongol slave in the classic film The Thief of Baghdad with Douglas Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was also a silent film. She's called A Striking Vision opposite one of the biggest stars of the silent film era, but wasn't overshadowed. And it was compared to a very, like, slave Leia <laughs> type appearance <laughs> like, from Star Wars. Like Star Wars? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess fitting that it's May 4th that recording this. Because, <laughs> you know, like, the scene. I don't remember what movie it's in, the second one. But it's not actually the second one. It's the... I know what yeah. she means. Like the one where she's in she's her... She's with Jabba the Hutt and she's in her slave her bikini, Leia bikini. Her space bikini. Yeah. And yeah. everyone was like losing it because now so many men are like obsessed with slave Leia. Yeah. So her outfit for the Thief of Baghdad was very slave Leia. So it's like there it's inherently problematic <laughs> every like yeah. every role you're mentioning but like that's cool that she was a movie star. <laughs> yeah exactly so she tried to work in american films for a very long time that was one of her major successes and just after facing constant discrimination she moved to europe for a short time oh, she cool. ended up doing some plays called smutch's geld in 1928 piccadilly in 1929 and her mm-hmm. first talking film in 1930 called The Flame of Love. We talked about how films started opening up the doors to allow talking in them. <laughs> um, yeah. And in order to move over to the talkies, which is what they were referred to, she learned how to speak German and French. Yes. Wow. And then also hired a vocal coach to like learn that so every like hollywood starlet at the time had like a slight british accent like a transcontinental yeah the um yes 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 yes. so Mm -hmm. she hired a vocal coach to learn that so that she could have like this talking voice that was needed for hollywood so that she could continue getting roles in talking films that's so cool another thing that happened during this time is while she was over in europe is that she had a photographer friend who ended up taking a bunch of pictures of her and it cemented her as a fashion icon. And there's tons of portraits of her. So that's a fun thing to go look up. I loved this note. It said, like Josephine Baker, like Josephine Baker, who we've done an episode on, Wong probably could have stayed abroad indefinitely as a major headliner. However, she was homesick for Los Angeles and her family and ended up returning Mm -hmm. back. Also, Paramount Studios was, like, promising her lead roles. So she returned to the United States and started in the Broadway production of On the Spot. And then, sadly, that same year, her mother was hit by a car in front of the family home and ended up passing away, which is just completely tragic. The rest of her family ended up staying in the family home for about four more years. And then, most notably, her father ended up returning to China. I think some of the family did, too, for a time, but I do know that her older brother 
still lives in the United States. Like his family does now. Mm-hmm. So they either went or returned later. She ended up playing more stereotypical roles. The director of the film Dangerous to Know asked her to use Japanese mannerisms while playing a Chinese character and she refused, which is really big deal actually that she was like, no, I'm not gonna, you know, mm-hmm. use Japanese mannerisms when I'm Chinese. She also played in the film Daughter of the Dragon because they promised her another role if she did so. And then ended up also appearing one of in the most famous films, Shanghai Express with her friend Marlene Diedrich. She received a ton of backlash for this role from the Chinese community because it was just a ton of stereotypical, like harmful stereotypes within this movie. She also Mm -hmm. commented multiple times that in every movie that she played, she always died so that the white girl with the yellow hair would win the man. And it just continued to happen. (laughs) However, in Shanghai Express, she actually didn't die. She didn't end up with the man, but she didn't die. So, (laughs) I mean, that's good. (laughs) It also would... Progress, people. It also would end up being the highest grossing movie of the year. So a lot of people begin to know who she was and really talk about her. And that's where they called her like the most famous Asian American at the time. Mm-hmm. So there was this movie that was coming out called The Good Earth. And they knew from the beginning it was going to be this huge film, top grossing. It had positive portrayals of Chinese immigrants and peasants. They were really excited about, you know, like doing this film. And multiple times magazines reported that Anime Wong was going to get the lead role multiple times and she auditioned for it multiple times did screen recordings everything after multiple screen recordings they kept telling her to come back in and she said hey look like i'm happy to do this but if you're doing it to prove that i look asian enough like i look asian enough i know i look asian enough i'm asian (laughs) so Mm -hmm. like this is getting a little excessive however they ended up casting an australian male lead And that cemented the fact that she would not get the role because he was white and she was Asian. So they cast an Austrian actress for the lead instead. After they cast these two lead roles, they asked her to test role for the concubine role named Lotus. Of course. (laughs) And she said to the studio, I'll be glad to take the test, but I won't play the part. If you let me play Olan, who's the lead woman, I'll be very glad. Mm -hmm. But you're asking me with Chinese blood to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture featuring an all-American cast portraying Chinese characters. And it was true. Literally every lead role in that entire film was played by a white person who was portraying a Chinese character. And it was a very big film. It's one of the most notable ones that's mentioned when it brings up Yellowface. So they could have completely avoided that by casting Asian leads, but whatever. And like they had the perfect movie <laughs> yes, star for exactly. it. exactly. It's not like she wasn't there and ready and famous and, and completely known, so qualified like- to do it too. They actually said Anime Wong was the most famous Chinese person in the world and not casting her was a scandal. That just goes Good. to show what happens. They could have cast her and then found a male lead, but anyway. No. Nope. Whatever. Sadly, also, Louise Reiner, nothing against her. I mean, like, it was the studio that cast her, but she was the one who had the role of Olan, the lead in mm-hmm. Yellowface. She went on to earn an Academy Award for her role. Wow. Yeah, as Olan in The Good Earth. 
it's also believed that like if Anna Mae Wong would have gotten this role, she would have gone on to still be continued a household name instead of ignored by history because it was such a big deal that like they would have had to pay attention to her, if that makes sense. So it's just annoying. After not being cast for this film, she ended up going on her first and only trip to China. She actually like hired a film crew and like made her own little film in China about being an Asian American. So yeah, wow. she narrated the film. She showed her meeting her relatives, going to get a traditional dress fitted, going to different like oh, cool. restaurants and explaining the food, showing the countryside. So really cool. And also mm-hmm. meeting up with her father there because of course he moved there after her mother died. While she was in China, however, a ton of the backlash from the Chinese community for the roles that she played came forward like all at once. Because she was like, betraying such stereotypes they said they gave speeches that lasted for over four hours and took turns berating me for the roles i played since i didn't speak mandarin i had to answer them in english and so they were just mad about like her roles and portrayal of chinese womanhood and she tried Mm -hmm. to explain herself she was like look when you're trying to establish yourself in a profession you have to take whatever you can get and then like eventually you're able to get to the point where you can get better and that's why like the good earth role was such a slap in the face because it was like the first mm-hmm. time she wouldn't have been a stereotype. She would have been able to actually just be like a Chinese character, which is really depressing. And then uh, one the article I read, it also said that it's interesting because that dilemma is still confronting a lot of Asian American actors today. Like either play the Oriental stereotype yeah. or don't get any role at all. I mean, yeah, I I wish I could like, I mean, I can't offer any type of solution, mm-hmm. but that sucks because it's like, you you know you should go after your dreams but it's like if the only way that you're going to succeed is by putting on these betrayals that are like also harmful like how do you i don't know like i don't know what choice yeah, you have it's like i guess either you play the harmful stereotype or there's no diversity in the movie at all you know what i mean it's like which, which like is worse uh, i hate like, it. Yeah, yeah i don't know so i don't know there's not a good solution for that but like she made a career in, in the only mm-hmm. way she could and i think that that's honorable it also probably wasn't helped that she wasn't married. You'll notice throughout this whole time, I never once mentioned a oh, relationship. Yeah. It was because of a lot of things, probably. So <laughs> she was rumored to have had affairs, but like no real lasting relationships of note. One of the things mm-hmm. they were talking, I listened to this podcast episode. It was actually really cool. Let me see the name of it. It's called Mobituaries with Moroka. And it was on Anime oh, cool. Wong, Death of a Trailblazer is the title. They that. actually talked to like her nieces and some close family friends and like interviewed them. And wow. yeah, which is cool. But someone mentioned like who else out there would have been on her level. And because of the law, like she couldn't marry a white guy. And so a lot of the people she was interacting with on a daily basis were completely off limits because remember, it was a felony. So she would have had to have married a Chinese-American man. And not a lot of Chinese-American men were in film. And if they were, they weren't nearly at the level that she had reached. And so it was just kind of this, like, power unbalance where it's like, well, it's not like she was going to go marry, like, you know, like, nothing against this. Yeah. But, like, she wasn't going to go marry, like, a dishwasher or a launderer, like her father. You know what I mean? Like, even though there's nothing wrong with that, it's just like it wasn't the life she was living. So 
it yeah, would have okay. been really weird. And so I think that that's probably the majority of why she didn't end up ever getting married was just because of these weird laws where she just wasn't interacting with anyone that she could actually get married to legally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, so, just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm like, I'm like so weird, but like, <laughs> it's hard to like have the right adjectives to like describe this because like, obviously it's horrifying and yeah sucks, that's and all. it's like I, completely I out of my realm of like understanding because i just don't get it yeah I'm like, what why couldn't she marry just her co-star it's like no mm-hmm. anyway also her focus was just never really on like being a housewife or having children she said mm-hmm. that once when they asked her about like her love life she said i hope it won't come for a long time until i've enjoyed my career and made a name for myself and my family so she was like hopeful for it but it wasn't her focus, and I don't think she was necessarily, like, pining after having that life. Yeah. Uh, a family friend mentioned that they could never imagine her as, like, a Chinese housewife who had been confined to the home making babies and dinner for the rest of her life. Because it wouldn't have been considered mm-hmm. proper for her anymore to appear in public in the movies that she was in once she was married. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it just wasn't really her focus. But it didn't really help when she was over in China and they were looking at her like this loose woman. She ended up staying in China for a year, which is really cool. Got to soak up the culture, the people, and the way of life. And then returned to Los Angeles and said, I'm convinced that I could never play in the Chinese theater. I have no feeling for it. It's a pretty sad situation to be rejected by the Chinese because I'm too American. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know anything personally, but I've heard that, especially with like, yeah, people who are in kind of two cultures of it's like you're too Chinese for America, but then you're too American for where you're from. So it's like, where do you actually fit Exactly. And that was a major problem. She got a few notable roles when she returned. She played a surgeon, which is a major accomplishment for a woman of any race at that time in a show called The King of Chinatown. And then right around this time is when World War II kind of began its whole thing. Japan attacked China in 1937. And she spent a ton of her time raising money for her home country and actively finding a way to help the Chinese after this major attack. A lot of the world didn't care about that. To be honest, I never learned about that part of World War II until Mm -hmm. the Pearl Harbor attack when all of a sudden everyone cared about who Japan was attacking. So she performed in a lot of propaganda films, playing the roles of brave Chinese Americans battling the Japanese and confronting them. She spent a lot of time visiting American troops across the country and speaking to different soldiers. She also said that she would make double tours in the colored camps because they had an entirely different army base for the soldiers of color, of course, because in war, they have to continue racism. And would make brief addresses in the theaters to all the soldiers that were there. This is also when the second, like, biggest snub of her career happened. Like, I'd say the first one was definitely Good Earth, and then this is the second one. There was a Chinese official, I guess she would be called. I don't really know. Her name was Madame Kam Hai Shak. She came to raise money for the war effort in Hollywood for China. And kind of, like, band together, like, America and China against, like, the Japanese and Germany, you know, with, like, World War II. And everyone, of course, expected the most famous Chinese-American movie star to attend the fundraiser. 
it would make sense. Other stars like Judy Garland, Shirley, Shirley Temple, Rita Hay- Hayworth, and Ginger Rogers, among many others, were all there. They stood for both national anthems, so both the Chinese and American national anthem. It was held at the Hollywood Bowl. And Madame Shang gave a speech and thanked America for leadership and pleading for China's case in the war for 45 minutes. And they didn't invite Anna Mae Wong at all. Wow. She did not receive an invitation, which just kind of showed like how China viewed her. That like her ancestral mm-hmm. country was so ashamed of her that they didn't even let her attend a fundraiser for like where her father was currently living, where many of her relatives were. Like, <laughs> yeah, and like obviously she's very famous, so like a representation of yeah. Yeah, dang. so they didn't even invite her. She was extremely humiliated, ashamed, hurt as anyone would be, mm-hmm. but just kind of continued on because what do you do? You can't like throw a fit about it. Like yeah. it's done. But yeah, just kind of a major snub that they like didn't invite her. Later in 1951, she became the first Asian American to lead a U.S. television show. So she's the first Asian American woman and Asian American to be the lead in a television show. They called it the Gallery of Madame Lu Song. And none of the footage exists anymore because all of it was dumped in the river in 1970. Does it say why? Yeah, everyone hated it because they said Wong was too American. Oh, okay. So it was canceled shortly after. So just kind of also having that problem where like she's too American for the Asian roles. She also did a few other character actress roles, some on TV. Mainly though during this time she started to have some health problems. And so she just spent a lot of time in her neighborhood with her. It was a Chinese American community and they would just like play poker and like get drunk. which whatever and then uh, her health sadly though was declining at uh, this time from liver problems which probably wasn't helped by the drinking mm. but i mean i don't know uh even ended up selling jewelry to pay for medical bills during this time oh that's yeah so just because things were really tight she couldn't act so it was about 17 years i think that she went through where she was in this like semi-retirement she spent mm-hmm. a lot of time reading books she commented to a friend about the book the Pos- the power of positive thinking and how much she liked that book she also knitted a sweater <laughs> and then oh and then also spent Wholesome. a lot of time writing like these devoted letters to her close friends just about different things she did a mm-hmm. tiny comeback role in a movie called portrait in black and that was about a decade later and then a major thing was about to happen for her this would have been huge it would have revived her entire career probably would have brought her into the forefront again in 1961 a friend that she'd known from the movie business told her that they were casting the show Flower Drum Song, which is a Roger and Hammerstein musical. And they Mm. ended up casting, I think for the majority, the cast was all pretty much Asian, which is a big deal, especially at that time period that they ended up casting predominantly Asian characters to play an Asian, you know, whatever. (laughs) But it it was a big deal. And they told her that it was pretty much concrete that she was going to be cast in the show that she was going to play a part or she was going to play the part of auntie leanne and she even had received the script and was reading over it and they were actually like putting a focus on doing this and not yellow face like that would have been one of the first movies she would have been able to participate in where that would have been the case mm-hmm. it was gonna start filming in february of like 1961 so she had received the script she was reading over it 
And on February 3rd, 1961, she ended up dying of a heart attack. No. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. She was only 56. So wow. just so sad. Um, Flower Drum Song went on to be like a pretty well-known musical. The cast, if you look it up, is for the most part completely Asian with some other minorities. I have honestly never even heard of that musical. So I feel like I need to go watch I know, that. I want to watch it really bad. The woman who ended up playing her role was actually half black. But yeah, just kind of a bummer that like she had this chance to play this like major role. Like finally. And then yeah. she ended up dying like so young. The saddest part is after her death, they pretty much, they just completely ignored her because of those stereotypes that she played, like the exotic slave girl, the villainous dragon lady, and the mysterious siren of the Orient with her deadly charms. Hmm. In her obituary, Time Magazine dubbed her as the screen's foremost Oriental villainess. Yeah. Which I think they were, they meant it in a positive way. Obviously, don't put insults in people's obituaries, but that's just not good (laughs) yeah um and the saddest part is that people ended up blaming her for the creation of these negative asian stereotypes even though she wasn't the one who created them but because she was one of those main actresses that was in a lot of Mm -hmm. those like stereotypical films they ended up just blaming her for the creation of them and then by the time she passed away a lot of people were starting to like realize that it was negative so they weren't doing it anymore so then they were like oh well she's gone it's solved Well, and I think it's just so funny. I think it's people's tendencies to, like, blame the woman rather than, like, blame the systems that she was in that, like, forced her to do that. Or not, like, like, not forced her, but, you know, like, what about the movie producers? Mm -hmm. What about the script writers? What about the directors? Like, what about these laws that were put in place that made it so she really didn't have any options? And it's just so funny that we love to always point the finger of the woman doing it as opposed to like really considering the context of where she was where the world was and like like i said like what the systems around her were forcing her into like it's not marilyn monroe's fault that she's a sex symbol (laughs) you know like it's society like did she use it to her advantage yeah i think so but like it's not her fault yeah you know and i think it's the same thing with anna wong you can't blame all of the asian stereotypes on a single asian woman like that's no and they would have existed if she didn't they just would have been in yellow face which in a lot of ways i think would have been worse i don't know i like (laughs) i I honestly would be interested in obviously someone who is not me a white woman like i'd be interested in what is worse like if it is better or if it's not yeah. like I would yeah I don't know if I can what my opinion would be if I can have an opinion on that because yeah I don't know I, don't know I would think that it's better to like have her be like a you know representation of getting paid for it right I guess or is that even like the point I, I don't, don't know, know either so yeah interesting little thing there Lisa Liu who is an Asian American woman she ended up getting a Hollywood star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame years later And ended Mm -hmm. up paying homage to the first Asian American woman to earn a Hollywood star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Anna Mae Wong. Mm. Um, She mentioned in her speech that Anna Mae Wong was able to create a career during the toughest time to be an Asian in America and rose to a role in Hollywood despite having no role models herself. And that's very true. There was no one that she could look at on the screen and say, I look like them. I can be like them. I want to be them. Yeah. Um, And now she's received a lot more recognition the asian american arts awards and the asian fashion designers group named annual awards after her 
And there's been a couple of books, and I think there was even a play that was written about her. And both of her nieces are named after her, which is very sweet. Mm -hmm. They both have the middle name May, and they both have names that start with A. So (laughs) I think it's like Anna Maywong and April Maywong are their names. And they continue her legacy as much as they possibly can. But that's Anna Maywong. I know it was a longer one, but (laughs) she had so much. And there was so much like racism and rules and everything else. Well, that's what we really, honestly, I don't think we've even talked a lot about Asian American artists. And so I feel like this is the first time we had to be like, wait, here is all of this context that we really haven't gotten a chance or haven't, yeah, haven't dived into yet. Yeah, exactly. Because then the next time we do an Asian American in the golden age of Hollywood, we can just be like, reference this episode. (laughs) Also, I was looking up her and Gemma Chan, I think, paid homage to her for the Met Gala. Oh, the one that just last, happened? The last Met Gala. Not just like last night, oh, but okay. the last yeah. one. I saw that. And I think that I, I mentioned that they're making, maybe doing a biopic on her I with Gemma Chan so. being, yeah, that'd be so good. So anyways, I just like saw that. I think I remember first learning her or hearing that name vaguely when it was, you know, like oh yeah, I totally remember this. Yeah, I forgot, I but now I'm like, actually oh yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. when I wrote down her name on the list. I was, oh, there I we was go. trying to remember today. I was like, when did I hear about her? Because I've had her on the list forever. I actually did the research like mm-hmm. a couple of months ago. But yeah, like, and I think it was it was Gemma Chan's dress from the Met Gala where she had the dragon across the front i'll post a picture you guys can see well i'm so glad that i now know about this amazing actress amazing woman me too but anyway um happy asian pacific american culture month oh wait really oh perfect so very on theme happy little accident there and let us know if there's any more asian artists that we should cover i'm sure there's tons so any suggestions you have are always welcome well we'll be back next week with more to talk about and thanks for being here if you're a fan and you've been here a while follow us on instagram leave us a rating review and we really appreciate it thank you bye Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.